Chair. Today's scripture reading is Romans chapter 9, verse 1 to 5. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I want to take a minute before uh, opening up the word to um, pray for John MacArthur and his church in California. Uh, For those who are not familiar with what's going on, um, John MacArthur has taken a stand against the government of California who has said that the church can't open, can't meet, and yet they've opened up uh, casinos and uh, other businesses like that. And, uh, and so John MacArthur is, has said, well, as a church, we're going to, uh, to, to do what the scripture says uh, when the apostles were told to not speak in the name of Jesus. And uh, they, uh, the apostles said to the government leaders of their day, uh, well, you're going to have to choose, do we obey God or do we obey man? And so John MacArthur has taken that stand. He's done it not only for his church, but he's done it for the church across America. And I think that we should uphold him and their church, uh, Grace Church, in prayer. Father, we come before you on behalf of our brother and um, the brothers and sisters of Grace Church. We ask you, Lord God, to, uh, to continue to grant wisdom. You have told us to be subject to our government leaders And uh, throughout this time, uh, as churches, we have sought to to be obedient until the the government has uh, violated its role uh, by seeking to shut down the church while it opens up um, the uh, the worldly things. Um, And so we, uh, we come before you on behalf of that stance that has been taken against not just the government of uh, California, Lord, but in many ways opening the eyes of other churches, including ours, to uh, what is the enemy's purpose in shutting down the church and keeping us from gathering in worship. And so we, uh, we pray that you would continue to open our eyes and our understanding, that you'd continue to give us the boldness of Christ but that we would be as wise as serpents, but harmless as doves in what we do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This past week, we have, as Americans, uh, examined uh, two major tragedies that have affected this whole nation. Nineteen years ago, this past Friday, we lost nearly 3,000 lives in what has become known as simply 9-11, the uh, events in which the radical Islamic group Al-Qaeda struck at the heart of this nation. The event brought the nation to a standstill as all of us um, looked at what was happening, watching it on television, listening to it on the radio, if we couldn't get it on television. And at that time, then-President George Bush made a statement that seemed so true at the time. We will never forget their sacrifice 
Uh, those of you who were, were watching and listening, you, you heard those words, and it seemed so true at that time that we would not forget. And yet, just 19 years later, it seems that we have, in many cases, forgotten. Not only have we forgotten the terrorism um, there, but we've also uh, forgotten the tragedy of what has affected us as a nation as a whole. There was a second tragedy that might have been on the minds of us had we not been focused on all the other things that are going on. This past week was National Suicide Prevention Awareness Week. Suicide has reached academic proportions due to this pandemic uh, that we are experiencing with COVID. But even more profound than that has been the uh, rate in which our military has experienced suicide uh, at 50% higher rates than the, you know, the average uh, population in America. 50% higher. More than 45,000 active duty or uh, veterans have committed suicide in the past six years. That's an average, my friends, of 20 a day over the past six years. That is a lot. Also affected are the military spouses and their dependents, which averages out to about one every other day, taking their lives because of what has happened to uh, their family members in the military. And yet, even that statistic pales in comparison to the number of suicides that are resulting from this pandemic. The estimate is that through either drug overdose or through uh, the increase of, of suicides, that it'll be close to 75,000 suicides in the United States this year. That's a lot of people. It's a great sadness. And when you look at the world as a whole, 800,000, 800,000 a year die of suicide. All of that is a great tragedy. But what I want to know, has there been an increase in evangelism as a result of our understanding those issues? Have we become more burdened for those who are going to spend eternity without Christ? Are we as Christians who claim to believe that those who do not know Jesus Christ, that they will spend an eternity separated from God, suffering in an eternal hell? Do we care enough to share the good news of the gospel with them? Do you and I have an increased burden as we see what's happening in our nation to care enough to tell others that there is an escape from it in Christ? All week long, those who have been faithfully working through the devotions, they pondered these words that were read this morning by the Apostle Paul the agonizing words of his sorrow about those who are without Christ. The lostness of humanity and the eternal condemnation that they face made Paul want to endure whatever it costs in order for him to share Christ. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. He was even stoned almost to death. He was shipwrecked. And all of that he endured. Why? Because he understood the dangers of hell. The dangers of lostness. He had an inner longing to reach men and women with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that could bring them peace with God. Reconciled to their creator. And so as we look at this passage this morning... I want you to consider this theme that every true Christian must be burdened for the lost. Do you claim to be a Christian? Do you have a burden for those who do not know Christ? How much do you believe the gospel? 
Most Christians believe enough so that they can get to heaven. But do they believe enough to take others with them, to share their faith? So many do not believe enough to tell others about Jesus Christ. If we would just have, along with the Apostle Paul, the brokenness of conscience that would cause us to care about those who are without Christ. May God break through our own selfishness, our own desire for our own safety, and not care about the people around us. If we would just have that same passion that Paul expresses in verse 1, when he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. We need to hone our conscience. We need to hone it to a razor's edge that it might correct us when we don't care. That it might cause our hearts and our mind to see the lost around us. You know, you saw those sunglasses and and Nick was talking about the sunglasses that he had when he was talking about the worldview in his sermon. But what would happen if we did have, uh, as Julius was talking about in his uh, Sunday school lesson today, what if we did have a pair of glasses that we could put on that would say, this person is saved, but those four people aren't. That one's saved, but those ten aren't. Would that change our heart? Would it change our attitude? Would it make us want to share Christ? We know there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we rejoice in that. But that doesn't mean that our conscience can go on vacation. As you listen to this message today, my prayer is that you who have not had your spirit broken for the lost, that you might begin to get a passion, the passion that the Apostle Paul shares in these first three verses about how he saw the world around him. I want you to sense two truths that we see in these three verses that are truths about Paul that should be truths about you, it should be truths about me as well. And the first one is that we need to begin with the burden of our heart for the lost. We need to have a burden in our heart. You know, I know that, that Christians tend to intensify their prayers when there's a loved one or a, a friend who is ill. And the, the sicker that that person is, the more intense becomes our prayer. Even to the point where we... we when they were really, really sick and, and they're in danger perhaps of dying, that we weep over it and we cry and we call out to God and we beg for God to hear us as we intercede for those who are sick. And as a result, you ought to be able to relate to what Paul says there in verse 2. He says that, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. What, what makes that kind of a burden this unceasing anguish in our heart. Well, one of those things is, as I said, when a loved one, somebody close to us, when they are desperately ill, we get this kind of passion. We get to the place where we, we are burdened for them and we, we pray for them. I want you to think back over your life. Think back to the times when somebody that you love, somebody that you cared about, when, when they were ill, have there been times when you prayed long and hard for them? When you asked God for this physical healing in their body? I wonder if you haven't done that, if you even believe in prayer. Do you really believe that God cares, that, that God loves, and that, that God is powerful? Do you think that he hears our prayers? How can we not agonize for someone that we love that is ill? How can we, we not 
pray for them with a great longing and anguish of heart. But now ask yourself, if I care so much about the physical welfare of this one that I care about, why don't I care as deeply for them if they're going to spend eternity separated from God in hell? If I care so much about their physical welfare when they're only going to live for a few short years, how can I not care about them and where they will spend all of eternity? Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11, he says, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. When he says that, he is not talking there about the reverence of the Lord. That, that, you know, we, that since we know what it is to reverence or to have awe towards God, he is talking about phobos, fear, terror. He, he, he's talking about the fact that because he understands the depths of sin, when he realizes how far he was, how separated he was from God, when he knew that he was, as Jonathan Edwards said, hanging over the, the, the fires of hell as if held only by a spider web that could give way at any time, because he understood that, he understood the terror of God. He understood what it is to be separated from God. And to be facing eternity. And as a result, he said, then we try to persuade others. We try to, to tell them of Christ. As Jesus told Simon the Pharisee, though, those that love much, or those who have been forgiven much, love much. But those who have been forgiven little, love little. He wasn't saying that, that, that God only you know, has to forgive somebody a little. He's, he's saying that there are people who believe that God has only forgiven them a little. That, that they really weren't that bad and, and that God should have probably have let them get into heaven anyway. But, you know, I'll ask Jesus to forgive me just to make sure. If we have that kind of a view of our salvation, of course we're not going to share Christ with others. We're not going to see their danger. We'll only see their danger if we have really understood how close we came to plunging into the fires of hell and being separated from God. Because your conscience is broken before a holy and righteous God, like Paul's conscience, every true Christian will be burdened for the lost. We might pray for the lost anywhere in the world when we pray for missions. We might be concerned about those in some lost tribe someplace. But how can we be burdened for the world if we're not burdened for our neighbor? How can we care for the lost over there someplace if we don't care for the lost next door or in our families. And so we'll notice the second truth that Paul reveals in these first three verses concerning having this broken conscience before God as he shares about the brothers of our hearts. That is, those who are close to us. I wonder why Christians give money for missions or even go on a short-term missions trip but never share Christ with the people around them. Never share the gospel because they're not concerned for their own neighbors. Listen to Paul's desperation in verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now this is the Apostle Paul who's been sent to the Gentiles to go out away from his kinsmen in the flesh, and yet his burden was still for them. And this is 
an incredible statement because of what he just finished saying in chapter 8. He has spent the whole of chapter 8 telling us that we are secure in Christ, that nothing can separate us from God's love, that those that he foreknew, he predestined, he called, having called them, he justified them, having justified them, he glorified them. And so nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, We're safe and secure. That's the way he ended chapter 8. And he flows right into this statement. You know, often people are are surprised at, at the statement that Paul is willing to sacrifice his own salvation for the salvation of, of others, for his ethnic clan. And it is an incredible statement. But it's not a unique statement. Moses had already said this 1,500 years earlier when he was saying to God, well, if if you're not going to take the people on into the land, if you're not going to spare them, then, then kill me. He was willing to do the same thing. And yet, neither is he that unique. Joseph was willing to spend 13 years as a slave in order that his brothers might be spared being slaves. Joseph willingly suffered, I'm sorry, Joseph suffered those 13 years. And then Daniel, Daniel faced the lion's den because three times a day he was on his knees before the Lord interceding on behalf of his people. Nehemiah took a leave of absence from his prestigious job to become one who went and got his hands dirty building the city of Jerusalem because he cared about the security of his people. All of those are heroic sacrifices made on behalf of the ethnic people. And of course, none of that compares to what Jesus did. What the eternal Son of God did by becoming flesh, coming into this world, giving up his divine powers, humbling himself, as the scripture says, becoming a servant for us. He literally gave up his life. He gave up his righteousness, taking on our sin in that place. He absorbed the wrath of God so that he might save his brothers, as Hebrews 2 calls us. He is not ashamed to call us his brothers. But Paul knew that he could not repeat what Jesus Christ had already done. He's not saying, you know, God take me as Moses did. Moses may not fully have understood the implications of that. Paul understood the implications. Paul knew what he was talking about in chapter 8. He understood what God had done in terms of salvation through Jesus Christ. But Paul is, is not saying that. But what Paul is doing is he's setting up this tremendous image for us of just how his heart agonized for the people, his lost fellow Jews. In other words, he was saying to them, what would be the greatest sacrifice that anyone could possibly ever make so that you might gain eternal life? It would be to switch places. I take your place in hell so that you can have eternal life. In a recent devotional this week, the writer asked us to reflect on our missionaries. To think about what our missionaries, particularly those that had families, had done when they had left the safety and security here in America and they had gone off to another country and then particularly those that had gone to a a country that is opposed to the gospel, that's hostile to the gospel. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about a heart of sacrifice. He's talking about what, what Jesus meant when he said, you have to be willing to hate your father and mother, your wife 
and children, your brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life, if you want to be my disciple. That kind of, of, of willingness to surrender whatever is necessary so that others might hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and might come to a saving knowledge of the Lord. Do you know the story of Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, and, and the, the rest of their fellow missionaries? They went to the Wayodani tribe in the forest of, uh, rainforest of Ecuador. The Wyodani tribe were also known as the Akas. The Aka people, the word Aka means savages. They were known for their savagery. And these five individuals went there and they were all brutally murdered. Two years later, Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth, and Nate Saint's sister, Rachel, traveled to those same people to share the gospel. Their five, the five husbands had been killed. Brothers, family members, they'd been killed. As missionaries going to these people. And yet those two women were willing to sacrifice their lives as well that the Wyodani people might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, which, those of you who know the story, they did. They came to Christ, many of them. That's the passion that Paul is describing here. It is the heart for the loss, a passion for which one might consider losing everything so that they might know Christ. But what Paul is saying here goes beyond even that. Paul said he's willing to die for his brothers, his kinsmen in the flesh. These are the same individuals who had crucified Jesus Christ. These are the same ones who are responsible for having imprisoned Paul, having beaten him multiple times, 40 stripes minus one, you had caused a riot so that people might stone Paul almost to death. These were not friends. They were not family, and they weren't even a lost tribe somewhere in a foreign country. These were people that knew Paul, that knew about Jesus Christ. These were people who had made a choice to reject it all. And that's why Paul is describing here the most improbable event so that they might gain Christ. A loss so great, a loss so impossible of him taking their place. Sworn enemies, haters of Christ, haters of Paul, haters of all things Christian. And yet, his heart was broken for them. And he wept and cried and anguished, almost as Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane, for the sake of these people who hated him. Why? Why would he pray so fervently? Why would he pray so passionately for these kinsmen? He did it because of election. See, Paul knew that the only possible means that these individuals who had been responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, who hated everything about the way, about Christianity, that the only possible way that they would ever come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ was by God stepping into history and changing their hearts and changing their minds. You see, Paul understood that. Why? Because Paul had been one of them. Paul knew exactly what they were feeling. He knew exactly what they were thinking. As a matter of fact, he had done the training of many of those who hated the gospel. Saul of Tarsus, known as a persecutor of the church, 
having a zeal for God that excelled anybody else in all of Israel. He knew what these people were and what they were capable of doing and why they were what they were. And as a result, he also knew that the only way that their heart could be changed would be by a supernatural act of God, the same kind of supernatural act of God that happened to him on the road to Damascus. Where Jesus Christ knocked him off his high horse, humbled him, and brought faith to him. And so I want you to notice that Paul knew that for these Jews to believe would take the benediction of Christ in their hearts. No word of testimony, no miracles, no defense of the faith would change their frozen spirits. Only God's supernatural work could break through their stubbornness, could break through that hard-heartedness and open them up to the blessings of Christ. Verse 5 ends. He is the one who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. You see, Paul knew that only God could change that kind of a heart. That only God could bring the blessings of Christ in salvation to those who had such a strong, passionate hatred of all things God and all things Christian. How did Paul know that? Well, notice it is because of the belonging to our hope of those things eternal through election. Consider how many people you know who grew up in a Christian family, grew up in a, in a church, whether a Catholic or, or a Protestant, and yet today they've walked away from any form of faith. Some of them had seen miracles, maybe the miracle of an alcoholic father who came to know Christ and was set free, or, or maybe a, a, a drug addict family member. I remember it for me. It was my two sisters. I have four older sisters, and the oldest one had moved here to New York, and she had gotten into the hippie scene and, and all those kind of things. And then the younger of those older four, who also had gotten into the hippie scene and was doing drugs and, and open sex and, and all those kind of things. And both of them got saved, set free within a few months of each other through the Jesus movement back in the end of the 60s and the early 70s. Miracles of what God has done. So many have sat and seen those kind of things happen. They've sat in churches. They've heard the singing and they've, they've heard the preaching of the word of God. And yet they walked away. They, they've turned and gone from that, just like the Jews that Paul is praying for here in this text. Listen to the litany of the blessings that the Jewish nation, that they had, had enjoyed while the rest of the world was in darkness. I really appreciated Daniel's prayer as he walked through each of those things, showing the parallels between what Israel enjoyed and, and, and what we as Christians enjoy. Verse 4 and 5, verses 4 and 5. It says, they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. Paul's reminding the, the Roman Christians of the foundations of the faith that, that God had given to them, these special blessings that were those things God gave to his kinsmen to these Jews. And he begins it by the word Israelites. 
You know, the Jews had multiple names that they were called. Obviously, um, they were called Hebrews. We have a, a book of, of Hebrews. All right, so they were called Hebrews. That name was given to them because of the language that they spoke. They spoke Hebrew. Well, most of them spoke Aramaic, but at least they read Hebrew because that's what their scriptures were in. And so from the time of, of Moses on, they were known as the Hebrews because of their language. And then they're also known as the offspring of Abraham. And if we, we read down farther, we would see that. And if you went to 2 Corinthians there's a, a listing of names there. Israel, Hebrews, offspring of Abraham. Why the offspring of Abraham? We, we saw that back in chapter 4, didn't we? The offspring of Abraham because he's the one who received the original uh, you know, covenant of the, of the Israelites. He's the, the one that received the promise of God. They had a common ancestor, uh, an ethnicity that bound them together as, as those who had that one common ancestor. To much of the world of their day, they were also known as Jews. That is, the people of Judea. It's hold of a land that they belonged to, a, 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 a kingdom, a, a nation that they belonged to, the land of Judea. And so each of those titles, each of those names represented some aspect of who they were. But here Paul calls them Israelites. That is the descendants of the ones who wrestled with God. The Jacob who had, had taken on that, that angel of the Lord and had wrestled all night long with him, whose name was changed from supplanter to wrestler with God. And these are the Israelites who had come from his 12 sons who became 12 tribes. And those 12 tribes had been merged together into one nation by King David. And so to call them Israelites was to, to say that there is a, a, a king who rules over them. One that there was a promise that it, one of his seed would would always sit on the throne. And so to call them Israelites, so to remind them of that divine heritage that God had given to them that united all of those other truths underneath this concept of not just being an ethnic people, not just having a nation or land, but one over whom God ruled a theocracy through a king the king that God had made, the king that, that God had given. And to these Israelites had come adoption. Not once in the Old Testament is the term adoption ever used. I don't know if you, you've ever seen that, but the word adoption is a New Testament term for us who are adopted into God's family. And yet the concept of adoption is there throughout the Old Testament. The, the concept back at the time of Moses, when God said to the people of Israel, you will be my people and I will be your God. I have chosen you. Out of all the peoples, all the nations of the world, I have chosen you to be my people. Isaiah described God finding them like an infant abandoned in the blood of its birth and, and, and God had taken them and brought them to himself and had cleaned them up, and had raised them as his own. Yes, the word of adoption may not be in the Old Testament, but the concept of adoption was there and picked up here by the Apostle Paul. And the glory, the glory. It refers to God's Shekinah glory that had descended on the tabernacle and on the temple at their dedications. It's the Shekinah glory that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 when he talks about Moses coming down off the mountain having met with God and his face shining with such glory from being in the presence of God. It was the glory of Isaiah 6. The Lord seated on His throne and His, his train, his, his glory 
filling the temple and the seraphim crying, holy, holy, holy. This was what these kinsmen of Paul had inherited. Along with the law, that unique law that God himself had given to them as he spoke to them from Mount Sinai. And then had delivered to them with his own handwriting on those tablets of the covenant. The law that God had given as no one else had ever received that kind of divine law. And along with the law came the instructions of worship. How do you meet with God? Not how can I figure out what to do in order to please this God, but no, God's saying, here is what you must do. Here is how I can come into your midst. Here's what you need to do in order that we might have fellowship with one another, that we might have a relationship that is rich and full. Jesus, when speaking to the women at the well, made an incredible statement to her when she was saying, well, do we worship at the the temple here in Samaria or do we worship at the temple in Jerusalem? And Jesus made an incredible statement. He said, the Jews have it right. And the promises, so many promises given to the people of Israel. So many promises given to them through the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then later on through Moses and then to David. What more did they need to believe on Jesus Christ? They had it all. But notice how they missed the blessing of our hope. For everything it pointed them to Jesus as the Christ, as their Messiah. He was the Shekinah glory of God tabernacling in their midst. So John wrote in John 1, 14 to 18. In Romans 1, we read that according to the flesh, he was the descendant of David, that promised king of Israel. Matthew reveals him as a new lawgiver, In the Sermon on the Mount, the people said, no one has ever spoken like this man. Who was he? He is what verse 9, I'm sorry, what verse 5 tells us. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. They had it all, it was as plain as day. Every promise given by God, every prophecy fulfilled for hundreds of years of prophetic statements, a thousand years even earlier, and he fulfilled them all. No one had ever kept the law entirely until Jesus Christ came, and he kept it entirely. By the time he was age 12, he was able to teach the teachers of the law what the law was all about. He was the hope of Israel. He was the very means by which God would receive glory and honor and praise. And they rejected him. They spurned him. They spit on him. They crucified him. Peter, in that very powerful sermon of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, he declared, let all the house of Israel know therefore for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You see, like their forefathers who came out of Egypt and experienced all the the, the glory of God's presence. They'd seen the, the ten plagues that God had bestowed upon the Egyptians. They had seen the Red Sea open and crossed over on dry land and yet destroying the Pharaoh and, and his army as it passed through. They'd seen the water pour out of a rock. To water, not a few people, but millions of people and all of their cattle. They'd say, oh man, I'll come down from heaven. Their clothing didn't wear out and their shoes didn't wear out for 40 years. 
They had seen it all. And yet the Bible tells us they died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. They died because they would not believe. You see, it's not what we do. It's not even the miracles that are performed. And in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, there's this incredible statement. The writer of Hebrews says that it is impossible to bring to repentance those that have experienced all the things that the people of Israel experienced in the wilderness. It's impossible to bring them to repentance because they crucified again the Son of God in the flesh. In other words, what is he saying? God did everything possible. It's impossible to bring people to repentance if everything that God has done and shown them is so apparent, it's so clear. And yet they've hardened their heart and they've turned and said no to Jesus Christ. That's the agony of Paul's heart. That's what he is crying out for here. Recognizing that the only thing that could possibly change these individuals was not more miracles. It wasn't going to be more power of God uh, shown in healing this person or raising that person. Jesus had done all of that. It wasn't going to be in better teaching or better instruction or somebody who could argue apologetically better. Nobody could do that better than Jesus had done it. That would not change anyone's mind or anyone's heart. As Julia said in Sunday school, we need to do that. You know, we need to, to, to become really good at sharing the gospel. But that will not change anyone's heart. The only thing that can change a heart is God's supernatural work in election. So what was Paul praying for? He was praying, God, will you elect these people? Will you change their hearts? Because you're the only one that can. We have done everything else. We have shown the miracles. Wherever Paul went, miracles happened. And Paul was a talker. <laughs> he loved to preach. He loved to share the good news. Hearts weren't being changed because of what Paul said or what he did. It was only God supernaturally changed him. That's why he was anguished in his heart. That's what he cared about. Only God can change those stubborn hearts. Christ had come. He had come as a descendant of David. He had come as an Israelite into their midst. He was their blessed hope. And they spurned him. He came into his own, but his own received him not. So the gospel then went to the Gentiles. And these next two chapters are going to talk to us about the miracle that that was. But my question today, will you harden your heart as the Israelites did? God has done so much. How can you continue to harden your heart? Will you ignore the message of hope and the blessings that, that God has given to us? Or will you be like the Israelites? Ignoring the facts because your heart is so hard. As Christians, you and I need to understand that that's what we're facing as we go out to share Christ. We need to do everything we can to know the scriptures, to know the truth about Christ, to understand how to, to, to give a defense of the faith. We need to know all of that. But if it is not in an anguishing of prayer ahead of time, if we are not going out beseeching God to be merciful and gracious and change hearts, 
It'll fall like seed along the side of the road, hard packed, and the birds will come and nothing will grow from it. Oh, may God give to us the same anguish of heart that he gave to the Apostle Paul so that we might share the good news of the gospel that hearts by God's electing grace might be changed. And so I ask you, in conclusion, how much do you care about your unsaved people in your community? About your kinsmen? About your brothers? About your family? How much do you care about the people in this country and the people of the world? What are you willing to suffer that some of them might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? As we read these five verses that open up this ninth chapter, I pray that God would work in our hearts what he worked in Paul. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we would be lost today if the gospel had not left the Jews and gone to the Gentiles. We would be lost today if you were not in the process of building your church through election, but also through the message of hope that is given by the Apostle Paul and by all who from that day on have had a burden for the lost and who have cared enough to share the good news of the gospel so that Chris Gardner might hear and that each one in this room might hear. Oh, Lord God, continue to work to build your church as we share the gospel. And my prayer is that every human being on the face of this planet be elect. That today would be the day that you would pour out your spirit as never before on the whole world. But until that day happens, let us be faithful, even as Paul was, because he knew that no matter how hard the hearts, God could break through because he had done it for him. He had done it for me. And he had done it for each one of us. Turn our hearts to you that your church might be built. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.